So I'm going to read with you in 2 Kings, right at the start of 2 Kings, chapter 1, the first 10 verses. Um, read along with me. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, Ahaziah, Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, and he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go and inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, It is because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire, or sorry, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, Well, there came a man to meet us and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty He went up to Elijah who was sitting on top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So far this reading. I want to invite our um, speaker for this morning and Keith. Um, it's my pleasure to uh, come on up, Keith. It's my pleasure to um, invite Keith to share with us this morning. Keith is a friend of One Hope Community Church. He's the pastor of um, Narrow Warren Church and Transit Ministries. Transit Ministries is a ministry that that reaches out to people in the community that are doing it tough, that might need help and helping hand in some way. And Keith has a big heart for those people in the community, not just to give them food and 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 things but also to share with them the, the, the message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the hope of the world. And Keith also has a really big heart for just the gospel and for God. And we've been um, privileged to hear him speak before, and we're really looking forward to what he has to share with us today. So I'm just going to pray for him, and then I challenge you, just open your hearts and hear what God has to say. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for Keith. Lord, we want to thank you for... Um, his willingness to come here today. But Lord, we want to thank you that as he comes here today, he comes with a, uh, a long time of, of serving you in the kingdom and, and we are the ben- we're the beneficiaries of all of those, the, the wisdom that you've planted in him, uh, the heart that you've given him for your gospel and for your kingdom and for your people. And Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our hearts this morning to hear you, that you would open our minds to hear you, and that we would be submitted to know uh, what you want to share with us this morning. We pray for Keith. We pray for an equipping and anointing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. 
Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. Welcome, church. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I don't know if you need to stand up and have a stretch as we go on, but uh, we're starting off by looking at this passage in Kings. I don't know if you realise, but God didn't actually ever want the people of Israel to have a king. They grumbled and they grumbled and they said, all the nations around us have got kings, we want a king as well. So eventually God said, okay, you want a king, you can have a king. But often it was disastrous. Their first king, Saul, wasn't too great. And here we have another king, a couple of kings mentioned that weren't too great either. You've got King Ahab who later on married Jezebel and Ahab and Jezebel tried to kill the prophet Elijah and uh, that wasn't a very good story. But if you think that Ahab was bad, he had a son called Ahaziah and Ahaziah was even worse than Ahab. I don't know what Ahaziah was up to but uh, yeah, when I read the text, if you can sort of read beside it a little bit, he was probably a huge man, a very heavy man, because he loved his food. After all, the God that he called out to was the Lord of the Flies, the God of gluttony, the God of much food. And uh, it says in the Bible, and I'm just going to come to 2 Kings chapter 1 there, it says in verse 1 that after Ahab died, Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. Just take notice of the fact that he was in Samaria and he fell through the lattice of his upper room. Some versions might call it a balcony. He was up on a balcony, but I've got the idea that that balcony had a lattice so that Ahaziah could bring his chair up there, that he could sit up there and he could look down on the peasants. He could look down on the people as he feasted. But they didn't do their calculations too well. And all of a sudden there was a huge crack. And this poor guy, he just fell to the ground and he injured himself really badly. And so he decides that he's going to call on his God. He's going to call on his God. He says, go and consult Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. The Lord of the Flies. Baal Zebub, the Lord of the Flies. Go to the Lord of the Flies. Wow. The kings of Israel had fallen a long way. You know, why didn't he want to consult the God of Israel? Instead, he consults the Lord of the Flies. And he sends off his men to go and consult the Lord of the Flies. But in the meantime, Elijah's been told by God what's happening. And Elijah intercepts them. And Elijah says to them, uh, where are you going? And uh, is it because there's no God in Israel? Is, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to consult Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron? And uh, this is what the Lord says. And he says to the messengers, go back and tell the king this. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So the soldiers go back and they tell the king this. And the king says, no way. I'm going to kill that guy. You know, he says, what did he look like? He realized it was Elijah. That's Elijah and I'm going to kill him. And if he thinks he's going to get away, he won't get away. I'm going to absolutely destroy him. So he sends 50 of his toughest soldiers, along with a captain, to go and capture Elijah and kill him. 50 soldiers. That's a pretty phenomenal force to go against one man. But you know what happened? You know what happened? As the 50 soldiers came up to Elijah, Elijah basically said, look, I serve the God, the living God of Israel. And I'm going to call fire from heaven 
You know, if you're going to come to capture me, God's going to answer with fire. And the fire fell from heaven and consumed all the soldiers. You thought, you'd think that the king was a little bit dismayed by that. But instead he sends another 50 soldiers. And later on he sends another 50 soldiers. And the second time, fire falls from heaven. Fire of God falls. And these soldiers are all destroyed. Pretty gruesome stuff. But let me tell you, this, this would have been a favourite story in Israel. An absolutely favourite story. Because the people of Israel would have said, what a God we serve. He's the God of power, the God of fire. The God who calls down fire and destroys his enemies. This was a favourite story in Israel. They were really excited about this. And uh, every Israeli, every Israelite child would have known this story. But now we come to another passage. And if you've got your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to Luke. You know, Luke chapter 9. And we come to a passage where Jesus is basically coming to the same spot where all this happened. It's in Samaria. And it says there in Luke chapter 9, reading from verse 51, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and to destroy them? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and to destroy them? Now, I want you to do something with your Bibles, depending on which version you've got. If you've got the old King James Version or the New American Standard Bible, you don't need to do anything. I'm reading from the NIV. And you need to go down to the footnotes because there are some little extra bits in the footnotes. And later on, I want to talk about that a little bit. It says there, as even Elijah did. So if you were to read the King James, it would say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Even as Elijah did. You know, they looked at the situation. These were Samaritans and all Jesus wanted was a place to stay and the Samaritans said, no way, we're not having Jesus in our midst. And the disciples, James and John, you know, they, they were the angry disciples. They got their ire up and they said, Lord, why don't we do what Elijah did? Call down fire from heaven. Call down fire from heaven and have them destroyed. You know, they would have been thinking to themselves, you know, it's the same place, isn't it? Samaria, possibly the same village. Did Elijah call down fire? Yes, he did. Is one greater than Elijah here? Yes, he is. Therefore, we've got the right to call down fire. And as far as the disciples are concerned, it was totally appropriate for Jesus to call down fire from heaven and to just totally burn up that village. It's the way it was in the Old Testament. It's the way it was in the hearts of the disciples. They, they knew a God who was a God of power who destroyed his enemies. But how does Jesus react? And this is where I want you to look at the footnotes. Actually, I'm going to read to you the way it's said in the King James Bible. It says, But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You'll find the same translation in the New American Version. It might be in your footnotes. And there's a bit of controversy. Things are actually starting to change in the world of textual criticism. You see, the old King James Version was based on 
manuscripts, the, the oldest manuscripts that they could find, the Textus Receptus. But then in modern times, it wasn't that long, a couple of hundred years ago, scholars came along and said, you know, we, we, we've got to base the scriptures on the majority of texts, not just the oldest. And so if these passages weren't in the majority of texts, they dropped them out. They dropped out passages like at the end of John, where Jesus meets the woman who's caught in adultery. Beautiful passage. But they relegate that to not necessarily being quite kosher. And I was reading a... I was on the internet looking at this one day, and I came across a doctoral dissertation. And uh, it made me aware of the fact that things are changing in this area. You know, a lot of scholars are now reassessing what took place when that decision was made. And more and more scholars are starting to say, maybe we ought to start including these passages. They really do belong in the scriptures. I personally believe that every one of these passages actually does belong in the scriptures. And so it seems to me that that's exactly what Jesus would have said. Jesus would have turned to them and rebuked them and would have said, you're not serving God, you're serving the devil. Same as he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's not the way my kingdom operates. That's not the way that I do things. He rebuked them. You don't understand. We don't live under the old covenant, eye for eye and tooth for tooth and immediate judgment. We don't live under the law anymore. I've come to bring grace. I've come to bring forgiveness. Our world, of, our, you know, our world is suffering from a lack of grace. You know, Jesus, when he was born, he brought good news. Even the angels sang joy to the world. You know, we sing it at Christmas time because when Jesus came, he brought incredible joy, wonderful joy, because Jesus was so different from any other prophet that had been there. Some of the Old Testament prophets, they preached judgment and condemnation, but Jesus came along and he preached grace and mercy. As a matter of fact, when Jesus began his ministry in Luke 4, you might like to read that later on. In Luke 4, he stands up and he proclaims a favorable year of the Lord. He proclaims the opening of eyes. He proclaims the lifting up of those who are broken and who are wounded. It's a beautiful passage. But they try to kill him. And why do they try to kill him when he does that? They try to kill him because he forgot to add the bits that were there in Isaiah 61 about God's judgment and God's vengeance. And because Jesus didn't talk about God's judgment and God's vengeance, because he talked about grace and love and forgiveness and healing, they tried to kill Jesus. They took him to the edge of a cliff where they would have pushed him over and then stoned him because that's the way they used to stone people in those days. We're not under law. We're not under God's judgment. We're under grace. We're under good news. You know, and I was listening to somebody uh, a while ago who said, isn't it interesting that in the 1990s, when they surveyed the Americans, uh, the United States of America, and they asked non-Christians the question, what do you think of Christianity? What do you think of the church? About 86% were very positive towards the church. They resurveyed them in the year 2009, and only 16% were positive towards the church. You know, from a majority of people that were in favour of the church, it went down to a minority of people who were in favour of the church. And the question was asked, why was that? What had changed in the United States in the message of the church? What had changed? 
And the thing that had changed was that we had groups like the Moral Majority. We had preachers who instead of preaching the gospel, instead of preaching Jesus, instead of preaching God's love and forgiveness and grace, started preaching morals, started preaching good behavior, started condemning those who were immoral. Now, I believe in good morals. Good morals are great, but they're a fruit. It's not what we preach to the lost. Jesus never, ever preached good morals to the lost. You know, I think of the the woman in Samaria he came to who'd had four husbands and was living with another man. And uh, she was a pretty immoral woman. What did Jesus do when he met her? Did he say to his disciples, come on, guys, we're going to have to get some placards together. The immorality in this village can't be tolerated. This woman must be driven out. No, Jesus said, are you thirsty? I'm thirsty. Would you give me a drink? Jesus accepted her. Jesus poured out his love upon her. That act of Jesus was an act of acceptance and love, and her life was transformed. You see, that's the way Jesus operates. It fascinates me that when you go through the Gospels, that Jesus never, ever preached morals to the lost. He never preached behavior to the lost. Jesus instead revealed himself according to people's need. Like when he met a blind man, how does he reveal himself? I am the light of the world. When he meets the hungry, I am the bread of life. When he meets a dead person, I am the resurrection and the life. When he meets the thirsty, like the woman at the well, I am the water of life. That's Jesus. He meets people at their need. You know, I was privileged just a year ago to spend some time traveling around Australia with my wife. It's an amazing time. I think that that right today we were just uh, north of Alice Springs, starting to enjoy some beautiful warm weather. But I started to follow the, the, the history of a guy called John Flynn. John Flynn was a Presbyterian minister. He actually ended up becoming the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Australia for a while, even though his, his relationship with the, uh, with the Synod was sometimes less than good. John Flynn was uh, an amazing man. I discovered that there are more memorials to John Flynn in Australia than to any other human being. Now that's incredible. More memorials to this Presbyterian pastor than any other human being. You might remember that John Flynn founded the Flying Doctor Service, but he did a lot more than that. He started off by going out into the outback and meeting people. He started sending out nurses into the outback. But I was fascinated when I read his biography is that the way John Flynn did things was very different from the way I would have felt comfortable doing things when I was a young man. When he went to a town, the first thing he did is go to the pub. He'd go to the hotel. Now, that, that would have made my uh, ancestors, good reformed ancestors, turn over in their grave. You don't do that. You know, you, you go to the, to the church or to the place of worship But he'd go to these outback towns and he'd go to the pub and then he'd pull out his little book and he'd give the people in the pub a a message on first aid. He'd teach them about first aid. He'd teach them about health things, how to look after things. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that he did. He he then would always go to the, um, he would go to the um, race course. Now, in my upbringing, that was a big no-no. We never went to the race course. You don't do things like that. But uh, he did. He'd come into a town. He'd go to the pub. He'd speak to the people at the pub. He'd 
teach them about first aid and he'd slip in some messages about the gospel there and, uh, and then he'd go to the race course and he'd do the same thing there. He'd get to know people. You know, that's, that's how he worked. And I was thinking about that and I thought, isn't that exactly how Jesus worked? When he was going to Jerusalem, he deliberately went through Samaria. Amazing, amazing stuff. He went through the country of the people that were hated by the Jewish people. He went through Samaria to the people who were outcasts. He spent his time with people who were broken, who were wounded. That's where Jesus was. He didn't go just to the central places where the good people lived, but he went to where the poor people lived. You know, coming back to that passage in, in Luke 4, it's an amazing passage. Let me just read that to you again. Luke 4, and he picks up the scroll in verse 18. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this is what Jesus is like. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. What a magnificent message. You know, that's the heart of Jesus. That's what he did. He went to the poor. He went to the oppressed. He went to the broken. So much so that in Luke 15, the Pharisees complained about him because he was spending all his time eating with tax collectors and sinners. That's Jesus. That's the way he was. And the disciples learned a lesson that day. You know, they thought that Jesus would have sort of liked to call down fire and destroy these sinners. Instead, Jesus said, no, I don't fight evil with evil. I don't fight darkness with darkness. I do the opposite. I fight evil with good. I fight darkness with light. That's the way Jesus was. He ministered in the opposite spirit. That's what he taught us in the Sermon of the Mount. Now, I one day took a, uh, an alcoholic man, a man with a lot of problems, to an evangelistic meeting. He, he wanted to go. He said, Keith, will you come with me? And we went to this meeting and the guy started preaching. There was some singing and the guy started preaching. And the guy looked at his audience and he said, I just want to tell you something. If you drink alcohol, you're going to go to hell. He said, if you gamble, you're going to go to hell. If you dance, you're going to go to hell. And I looked at this friend of mine and I said, I think we're going to get out of here. And I talked to him afterwards and I said, did you hear what this guy was saying? He was saying, if you do this or you do that, <coughs> excuse me, or do the other thing, you're going to go to hell? He said, yeah. I said, that's not true. Jesus didn't say that. Have a look at John 3.16. John 3.16, the most beautiful passage. And tell me whether you can see any of those things in there. Can you see any of those things in there? It says this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I said to my friend, tell me, do you see the words, whoever believes and does not drink in there? He said, no. I said, do you see the words, whoever believes and does not gamble in there? He said, no. Do you see the words, he who believes and does not dance in there? He said, no. I said, what does it say? He says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Why do you think all the tax collectors and sinners gathered around Jesus? Why do you think they invited him to their homes? Because his message was a message of good news. The gospel, 
a message of incredible joy. The joy that even though we're broken and we're wounded and we muck up and we sin, God loved us so much that he gave his son Jesus to die that we might have life. That we might have life. You know, we might be tempted sometimes to call down fire on people. To say, God, your judgment needs to come onto those people. Can I encourage you to do what Jesus did? To rebuke that thought? To rebuke that attitude? To say, no, I'm going to love those who hate me. I'm going to bless those who curse me. I'm going to give to those who ask of me. You know, just yesterday I was watching the TV news about that Samoan Christian family who lost their son to a stabbing here in Melbourne. And I was touched by what they said. The father said, we forgive the people who killed my son, the boys who killed my son. We love them. I thought, wow, his English was pretty broken. But I thought, there's the heart of the gospel. A dad who's lost his son. And he can still say, no, we forgive. We love. We don't want to get revenge. We love them. We forgive them. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus does. That's who he is. And I just want to pray with you now. Oh, Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus came to bring us good news, to bring us joy, not condemnation, not judgment, but forgiveness and freedom and love and peace. Lord Jesus, as we sit here this morning, as we watch this message, some of us may feel condemned. We may know that we've not measured up, that we've done things that are hidden deep within us that we wouldn't want anyone else to know. Lord Jesus, you know them, and yet you love us. You know them, and you love us to bits. You love us so much that you died that we might be forgiven. Lord, may the joy and the hope of this truth seep deep into our spirits, into our souls, into our whole being as we go forth to serve you this week. So bless us, we pray, in your precious name. Amen. Amen.